So what I've done is I've said, okay, I went and researched this and, and financial planners will tell you that, that what you do is you invest in a 529 plan, which is government sponsored college savings plan. Everybody knows what a 529 plan. Well, I took that way of thinking and I was like, man, you can shove it because I think that's a terrible way of thinking. So here's what I did for each one of my children. Before they turned three years old, I bought them a house. The first two, my two oldest, my 10-year-old and my nine-year-old were houses that I actually house hacked in the mid 2000s. The last two kids, I frankly had more money when they were born, so I could just put a down payment and buy an investment property. But what I did was I bought a house for each kid before they turned three years old, put it on a 15-year fully amortized fixed rate note. Because do the math, three years old plus 15 years, kids 18 years old, college is paid for. That becomes their college fund. I never have to think about it again. I never have to save my own money. And here's what I've done. Have I created wealth? Sure, but what I've actually done is create options. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Mike Hills, welcome to the Better Wealth Podcast, my friend. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate being here. I'm really looking forward to our conversation because you are a spitfire. You're going to teach us how to build wealth (laughs) using real estate. We know the typical ways, not the right way. And right. also it's what's fascinating and you'll, I want you to share a little bit about your story, but you have a very unique uh, relationship with Zillow. I know you got to be careful with that, but I'm still going to drill you on some of the things that I'm fascinated by just with that business model. So overall, who are you? Why are you on the podcast? Why should someone in, invest the next couple minutes listening to this epic interview that I'm sure it's going to be? <laughs> Absolutely. So here's what we tell people right now. We are all facing a dilemma and that dilemma is how to retire the traditional ways of making money there's just better ways to do it out there you know i think i'm up to 10 maybe 12 different financial planners owe me lunch or dinner and they they won't call me back anymore because my way is better than theirs a little history of me my father was a financial planner and i finally beat him into submission using math and why real estate is better than the traditional way but here's what we do we lead by example so i run the brokers for atlas real estate we buy real estate own real estate manage real estate and we're up to seven states right now mostly in the western part of the united states we have a unique perspective on all things real estate mom and pop investors big corporate investors large institutional investors like zillow i've been personally investing for 20 years actually i sold my very first piece of real estate seven weeks ago that i ever purchased september 1st 2001 1031 exchanged the money and closed on a six unit apartment in Littleton, Colorado, literally this morning, and then flew to Phoenix, Arizona, where I happen to be right now doing this interview. So um, I spent, I bought a six unit apartment for $1.2 million today. And that started with an investment of $6,800 on a gift letter from my mom doing what's now called house hacking. Back when I did it, it was called, you're just crazy. What are you doing? You're 22. You know, so we lead by example. I wouldn't tell anybody to do with their money what I haven't done with my own money first. And I think that's what uh, why people listen to us because this isn't rocket science. I'm not going to invent the next widget. Most of us aren't. So how do we make the best financial decisions for us today to still get us into the tomorrow that we want to create for ourselves? I love it, man. And I'm obsessed with frameworks. I love frameworks and I love asking successful people that I would be willing to trade places with. How do you think about money? We can hear different deals, and I, I love that. It's great examples. But what I find is majority of wealth is not created on accident. It's created by a process of how we think. What is your framework on how to get wealthy? You say that 12 
financial planners own you own you lunch. I'm not one of them, by the way. <laughs> no, you're not. Anyways, like, I'm just curious, like, this is fascinating to me, because you do like you are a walking example of someone that gets it. And I like what you said, it's not some magical widget. A lot of times right. success is not this, this fun, exciting thing that's shining. It's usually right. it's, it's principle. So yeah, talk, talk about that framework. Here, here's what I would say. Most people think that what we're trying to do is create money. And they think about that as, as building wealth or building dollars or like trying to hit a target in their bank account or their target on a balance sheet. When I say it's really about creating options, because when you're 65, you know, what you're after is different than when you're 40 or than when you're 25. You know, when I was 25, my goal was to have a net worth of a million bucks by the time I was 30. And the funny thing is, is I hit that mark. By the time I was 33, I had lost it all. I have a unique perspective and to give anybody a, a frame of, of reference time-wise, I turned 30 in 2008. So to say that I hit it by the, by the beginning of, the, I turned, my birthday's in July. So turned 30, July, 2008, I was like, I'm worth a million bucks. This is legit. By 2010, I had lost it all, which is a, a different story in and of itself. But for me, creating wealth is about, really not about wealth as it is about options. And I'll give you an example. One of the things that I coach and teach on is I have, uh, I have four small children. My oldest is 10. My youngest is three. And what I, the example that I give people, and it doesn't need to be my why, but part of my why is how do I send my kids to college? I went to the University of Denver. When I went to DU school, it cost about $20,000 a year, roughly with room and board. You know, it raised over four years. My total tuition bill was about 90 grand for four years of college. My, uh, my parents helped. I had academic, yeah, one year today, right? but I had academic scholarship. My parents helped and I had a full-time job. Um, and when I got out of school, I still had student loans of about 25,000 bucks. So when my wife and I started having kids, I was like, man, how do I, how do I send my kids to college without the burden of a five or six figure debt um, on their lives when they get out of school at 22 years old, which I'm sure a bunch of your listeners are looking at that either for themselves or their, their kids. So what I've done is I said, okay, I went and researched this and, and financial planners will tell you that, that what you do is you invest in a 529 plan, which is government sponsored college savings plan. Everybody knows what the 529 plan. Well, I took that way of thinking and I was like, man, you can shove it because I think that's a terrible way of thinking. So here's what I did for each one of my children. Before they turned three years old, I bought them a house. The first two, my two oldest, my 10 year old and my nine year old were houses that I actually house hacked in the mid 2000s. The last two kids, I frankly had more money when they were born, so I could just put a down payment and buy an investment property. But what I did was I bought a house for each kid before they turned three years old, put it on a 15-year fully amortized fixed rate note. Because do the math, three years old plus 15 years, the kid's 18 years old, college is paid for. That becomes their college fund. I never have to think about it again. I never have to save my own money. And here's what I've done. Have I created wealth? Sure. But what I've actually done is create options. Now there's three options in that scenario. Option number one, when my kid hits 18, I could just sell the house. That's a taxable event, but I could just sell the house, pay the taxes, take the proceeds, send them to school. Or maybe my kid goes to a junior college or is a good athlete and has a scholarship or is smart and has an academic scholarship. Well, now I don't owe the bank anymore. So I can take that rent because I don't have to pay the bank anymore and I could pay their college tuition. Right. Or I could do a cash out refinance and I could pull my own money against myself, which is not taxable have the same tenants pay off the new loan, and I could send them to college. So what I've actually done while it is creating wealth, what I've done is played chess. I'm not playing checkers. I'm, yeah. I'm trying to solve a goal 15 years in the future 
when most Americans think of the future is six months from now or two years right. from now, it's like, no, nah, man, my, my youngest, my youngest son, Zeke, uh, my wife and I bought him uh, his college house when uh, he was four months from being born. He wasn't even born oh. yet. So when he's 14 and a half years old, his house is paid off. So I'm just curious, how did you, what, what were the prices of the houses? And I'm sure you bought them in your name, right? You could, you could mm -hmm. buy them oh, yeah. in your kid's yeah. name. So what is, is it just a technicality? Are you just going to sign it over to them? How much, cause I'm sure your firstborn, did you put the same type of down payments down on each house or what, how did you, how did you create a fair play with inflation and with the crazy times we live in? So the thought is I'm probably not going to give them the houses. I just will agree to pay for their college tuition yep. however I want to. Now, here's the interesting thing. And for those parents that are listening, I probably won't actually tell them that I'm going to pay their college tuition. Yeah. Like, yeah. you better get good grades, brother. Like, yeah. you, like, daddy ain't paying for it just so you can go party your face off at Arizona State. Like, no, 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 no. Yeah. Like, I, I'm doing this because you earn it because I want to, but I'm not obligated to. There's a huge, huge, huge difference. And Frankly, for me, one of the things now is I look at my kids and I go, how do I raise good humans, not just spoiled rich jerks? Because that is not what I want to raise. I want the option to pay for it, but I don't feel compelled. <laughs> like if my kid, you know, wants to go to San Diego State and party his face off, fine, you can do that in your dime. Right. You want to go to Harvard and get a good education, I'm happy to pay for that too. Political uh, affiliation aside. <laughs> um, right. But I, I'm... Uh, that's, that's sort of, that's what keeps me up at night now is, is just raising good humans. Um, not people that are spoiled, rich jerks, but, but I'm not gonna, you know, my, my commitment is I'll pay for their college. Like in the end, fair is a relative thing. Like one of the kids, like, you know, I have two daughters by definition, I'm gonna have to pay for two weddings, <laughs> which means I'm gonna have to, you know, spend more on them than I do on the boys. Right. Right. There's so, there's so many directions that I could go. I think one thing I'll just highlight is when we talk about options, I 100% agree. And it's interesting to me because I look at the future and I ask the question, will college be relevant in 20 years? I don't know. Uh, it's, it's very interesting. I think on one hand, it's become the new high school degree. And on the other hand, I think some people are, are, are realizing it's like, what value am I actually getting? Because if you want the experience, sure. there's cheaper experiences out there that can, that can give yeah. you all the friends you need uh, for a <laughs> fraction of the price. So it's just very interesting. And as a business, as a business owner, let's talk about how you raise your kids. Cause you talk about multiple times you want to raise them as kind human beings. Um, mm -hmm. what are some of your values? How do you teach your kids on how to understand money? Because I'm fascinated by this because there usually is a trend where you have wealthy parents, their kids don't grow up very ambitious, but sometimes, right. sometimes that's not the case. And so it's not, you can't, it's not like a, black and white, but how are you raising your kids to be intentional? And if I remember correctly, your oldest is 10 years old. So you, you're still, they're still on the young side, but how, what, where's your mindset as it relates to raising kids? So, so a couple of funny things, a funny story comes to mind. I have a client who's a very wealthy man. And he, once, once his kids got into like high school and started understanding money, he, he would say them, say these words to them. He'd look at his kids and say, Hey, you're not rich. I am, this is mine. And if I want to give it all away, I will like, I don't owe you this money. I will give you an easier path than I had. And that's kind of, for me, um, I want to give my kids an easier path than I had, but I still want you to go out and work and I want you to go out and earn it. And if you want to come to work for me someday, great. But you know what I want? I want you to go get your teeth kicked in in the real world for six or eight or 10 years. And then you can come to work for me. And I'm totally okay with that. Uh, specifically about money, 
Uh, one of the things that, that um, I did actually last year, right before COVID hit March of 2020, I took my daughter who is now 10, she was nine at the time. She and I went and spent a week in Lima, Peru, outside of uh, in the slums and worked in an orphanage and a community center, um, just serving the, the uh, very, very, very poor kids. And my daughter speaks Spanish. So, you know, she's a, a white girl with blonde hair and she's fluent in Spanish. So it was, it was awesome to see her relating and realize that America's poor. Now, I don't, again, I don't want to piss anybody off, but America's poor are not the world's poor. It is a different class of poor in our society. And, you know, I struggle when politicians talk about that. And it's like, go, go visit the slums of, uh, of a, some of these big South American countries, or even in Mexico. I have never visited those places in Mexico, but I know they exist. And then come and talk to me about uh, what poverty really is. You know, that's one of the ways that, that, that I work with my kids on understanding what the world really is outside of, you know, the nice cars and the private schools. And, you know, I mean, heck, my kids this year, we went to freaking uh, Atlantis, you know, in the Bahamas for spring break. Like, that's not real life. That's not how I grew up. It's how my kids are growing up because I want to do that stuff. But the world doesn't owe you anything. And that is important to me. You know, I think perspective is a huge part of wealth. And my life has been changed probably the most ever like going on missions trips and you go and you think like you go to these other countries and you're like, oh, I'm the gift to them. And you leave and you realize, wow, they were the gift to me. I, I remember being yes. in Guatemala and literally like I went to villages and people lived in huts, mud huts, and they, they were going blind because of smoke and all these things. And it's just perspective. It's like, yep. we, I got on an airplane to fly back to the States and I had right. better food in the air than these people had. It's just, it's just crazy to me, but it gives you ultimate perspective because at the end of the day, I mean, we could get really uh, religious. We could get really philosophical here, but like our life, the fact that we're born in the United States, the fact that we, the, the fact that you're, if you're listening to this right now or watching this right now, you're in the one to 2% of the world. And yeah, there in will history, in, not, in not just history. the world, like, by the in way, by the way, history two 200 years ago, are you, are you, uh, wanting to trade places with the richest person on earth? No, yeah, thank no. you. No, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't trade places 200 years ago on the, with, for the richest man on earth. And that's what tells you, that tells you how rich we are as a country. Right. Oh, and, and it's, uh, it is, it's just perspective and, and it's, you know, so some of the values, core values, just kindness, compassion, trying to have empathy, um, trying to lead by example. And trying to, you know, there's so many, especially real estate investors that, man, they will run over you to make 10 bucks. And it's like, it, it's um, build for the long term. You, you know, it, this is not a get rich quick thing. You know, there's a lot of flippers. I'm sure there's a lot of flippers listening right now. And I flip houses every now and then, probably to do two deals a year, but I'm much more interested in long-term wealth creation than just flipping a house and making a paycheck. And that's really what, that, what we coach and teach on is that this is about wealth, not just, not just, you know, sweet, you made 50 grand on a deal, but you're going to give Uncle Sam, you know, 20 or 25% of that and the risk that you had to take versus just buying and letting real estate do its thing. So is it fair to say your, what you guys teach and what you live out is buying real estate assets, holding them? having them obviously appreciate, but getting cash flow Is that, is that the, and, and I don't want to simplify your message, but is that essentially what you teach? So we have, uh, we have four, the four, what we would call our investment thesis 
is number one is buy for the 20 year picture. Okay. Can I reasonably bet that it's that the asset that I'm purchasing is going to be worth more in 20 years than it is today? And most people would say, well, that sound, that's really easy. And it's actually not because you have to buy in good markets. And we define good markets in a variety of ways. One thing that I tell investors to look for is population growth. If the population's not growing, then it's, it, it, you're going to have a hard argument thinking that your asset's going to get too much better in value. I mean, look at the places that, that the, the real estate market's gone crazy. It almost, almost always, you know, always is and never are bad words to use, but it popular, it, it's simple supply and demand economics. You know, so first one I would say is 20 year picture. Do you believe in the 20 year picture? Number two, is there a story or what I would refer to as path of development? There's a place in uh, Denver, Colorado, where I live. Uh, there's a big street called Colfax. And if you say Colfax to most people that, that are Denverites that have been around for a long time, to be very blunt, they'll think of prostitution and drugs because that's what Colfax is known for. But if you look at, there's an intersection of uh, um, I-225 or Highway 225 and Colfax. And over the past maybe seven years, they being the government has spent $4 billion with a B building massive hospitals, two VA wings, Children's Hospital and University of Colorado Children's Hospital right? and Schutz Medical Center. And you know what's happened to the real estate that, that's in concentric circles around there? It's gone crazy. Well, you know what? We started buying in that area, what's called Aurora North, which is frankly a rougher part of Aurora, Denver, Colorado, which Aurora is just a suburb. We started buying there probably four, five, six, seven years ago. And any of myself and our clients that have bought there, we have made an absolute killing on the real estate. Why? Because of that path of development. The third thing that we want when we buy is we buy things that have positive cash flow. There's a lot of places in the country where you can buy and you get really good cash flow, but you get no appreciation. There's other places where you get really good appreciation, but no cash flow. If you're buying for really good appreciation, but you get no cash flow, then you're just speculating. You're just gambling. Let's go to Vegas because that's all that is. But I want both. I want appreciation and I want cash flow. Why? Because the economy right now, anybody that comes to you is like, I'm a great investor. I always ask, great. When did you start investing? Like 2016. Yeah. Anybody's made money. If you bought anything. In so am I. I'm a great investor too. Yeah. Yeah. Like everybody is. And that's not, I'm not knocking anybody, yeah. but it's, it's, here's the deal. The market's going to go down. Who knows when, but it will go down. So that's why you want the good assets, the 20 year holds with cash flow, so that you can withstand the downtimes. And then the fourth one is we manage today, manage roughly 6,000 doors of property management. Uh, the goal is to grow that to, you know, 15,000 over the next three years, uh, because we built our PM company, our property management company, who is just another division of Atlas as, as owners, owners helping owners. Um, I don't trust most property management companies. I don't think most of them do a good job because they're sneaky with their fees and we're very, very upfront about it. So I, I would say from a, from a 30,000 foot view, those are our, our four pillars, Pro, our, uh, 20 year picture, path of development, positive cash flow. And then we have to do the property management. I mean, we don't have to. I have plenty of clients that buy and want to do it themselves. And usually what happens for your listeners that when you have two doors, you want to do it yourself. When you have six doors, you want to do PM yourself. When you have 16 doors, you're like, whoa, 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 I've got a day job, brother. I don't want to, yeah. I, I'm, and that's what happened to me personally is, you know, when I had 10 and 20 doors, fine. When I got up to 50, I was like, I don't want to do this anymore. It's, I, I'm too busy doing other stuff. Um, and then what happens, frankly, and everybody that owns properties knows this, 
you get too close with your tenants and then you don't treat it like a business anymore. Yeah. You don't raise rents when you should, you don't, yeah. you know, post three day notices or now 10 day notices when you should, like, you're just yeah. nicer because that's, what's easy. Um, yeah. And w- we find that people that own real estate, when they hand it over to us, their, their, pro- their uh, portfolio typically performs better because somebody actually is taking a much more active role in it. Right. Let's talk about the businesses that you own because you've mentioned a couple of things like property management, you're a real estate investor. You guys also buy and sell houses, I believe, for people. So I want to I want to get a picture of your businesses and some of the um, learning successes and failures that you've experienced through business. Sure. So I have a unique story in that I still think, uh, you know, we all go talk to our high school counselor and our high school counselor comes to you to us as, as you know, high school students and says, you know, find out what you really love. You know, what's your passion and do that. Well, I really like to drink and gamble. So I, um, I owned two liquor stores and was building a casino in Blackhawk, Colorado. And uh, that all went very, very poorly. Um, and uh, the crash in 2008, 2009 cost me my casino because I, it wasn't open yet. And uh, that cost me my liquor stores. What satters it cost me my best friend, which sucks. I mean, we can we can still talk today, but there was a lot of years we were really mad at each other um, because of you know the crash in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. Which I know a lot partners? of people. We were business partners and um, lost that. And what happened while I was doing that? I was actually house hacking again. Millennials dubbed it house hacking. I people just called me crazy through the two thousands while the liquor stores and casinos were going on. And two thousand twelve, um, the liquor stores, casino, my my life there had, I needed something to do. I owned five houses and the real estate was going surprisingly well, albeit very quietly. Cause I wasn't giving any effort to it. What I was doing was house hacking. I was buying a house, living there a little bit later, I would move and turn that into a rental. And my wife and I, at the time, we had five houses and a college buddy of mine who founded Atlas. Cause I, I'm not the founder of Atlas was like, Hey man, why don't you join me? And I joined Atlas as uh, there was two founders, our controller and me. I was the fourth, the fourth one to join the Atlas team. And today we're roughly 150 employees, and we have uh, very distinct business lines. So brokerage is the one that I run. So I run the brokerage, report directly to our CEO. We've got a property management division that has 6,000 doors. We have an institutional investment arm, which. You know, if you read the Wall Street Journal every three weeks, there's another article that says, you know, there's a, if you sell your house today, there's a 30% chance you're selling to a hedge fund. And it's true. Um, so I have a unique perspective into that. And then, as you mentioned earlier, we have Zillow as a client as well um, on that, uh, the, the big corporate uh, real estate side. So those are our, our business lines all under the banner of the Atlas Real Estate. So Zillow, they work with you to invest in real estate. Is that a correct statement? So no, what Zillow is doing is, first of all, let me say this for everybody that's mad at Zillow. I freaking love Zillow. I, I mean, there are, there are agents, there are real estate professionals out there that are mad at who Zillow is and what Zillow is doing. I think Zillow, what Zillow is doing is fantastic. And really what they're at the core of what they're doing is they're trying to make the consumer experience easier and better. And frankly, the uh, buying a house is a pain in the neck. And what Zillow has done is come in and said, hey, let's make this easier. So what they're doing in, in markets, I forget the exact number, but Denver being one of them, Denver, Colorado Springs and Fort Collins, which is our relationship with Zillow. They are buying uh, single family homes, uh, but they're not buying them. They're not buying them to, to make a ton of money. 
on them. What they're doing is they're buying to own them for a few months and then turn around and sell them all the time, making the consumer experience just a little bit better. So that's what Zillow is doing. We happen to be, we've helped them for, we've, we've had a relationship with Zillow now for going on three years. There's some some lead things that we do with them on the residential real estate side. There's some help with analyzing their properties and, and but Zillow is buying real estate, but they're not buying to hold. They're not taking this out of the hands of the American consumer. Like a lot of, uh, like some of the joint venture people, you know, some, some of those articles that you see, some of them are, and that, that and, is legitimate. And again, one of the things that I'm just, again, I'm not super familiar with the model, but they, they obviously know a ton of data. They have a ton of data about what's going on. And so what they will do is they'll buy a house and, and they, probably will get a good price on that and then hold it for a couple months and resell it. And then if they resold it, they would, would they use a realtor or would they just sell it with someone like an, and use an employee in Zillow? Is that, is that how they're doing that? Do they like offer homes or do they just, when people list their house, will they just buy it? Like how do they work as it relates to that? So they are using realtors when they go to sell their house, which is one of the reasons I love them because my company is the realtors that they use. Yeah, so okay, yeah. we, you know, so let's be honest. I mean that, so we have a very tight relationship with Zillow in that regard. In some instances, they use realtors. So, you know, the rumor is that everybody thinks that Zillow is trying to put people out of uh, realtors out of business and they're not. Now, will that change in the future? I have no idea. But today I can tell you that they're not. They, they've been very good to realtors, um, but it, the, you know, they're the, they're the 8,000 pound gorilla. So people get mad at them, um, which is fine. But I, I just love what they're doing because they, they make it easier. I mean, all of us, what do we do? And I wonder what my house is worth. What do we do? We go on Zillow and, oh. and get his estimate. That's what we all do. I mean, that's because it's the quickest, fastest, easiest way. And I think it's legit. So I love it when people talk trash and then go on and they're like, I'm like, you're on Zillow. I bet it's in your freaking search history on, on your computer. And yet you're going to bash them. Like, come on. Yeah. Um, so, so uh, does that answer your question? Yeah, there's a couple of realtors that listen to this podcast. What would your message be to double down and how to make that successful? Like, would you do you have any like, you know, billboard um, advice? I would say that get on get on the bus because if you're if if you think that real estate's going to go back to the way it was, yeah, five years ago, ten years ago, fifteen years ago, you're crazy. Yeah, you know that so innovate or go hungry. I mean, that, that, that's honestly, you know, whether that's Zillow, I'm not, that, that's not in relation to Zillow or not Zillow. That's just the few, it, it, real estate is changing, has changed, will continue to change. You know, the, the days of, now you and I don't remember this because we're too young, but some of your listeners probably do when you get in your realtor's car and your realtor has that like flip book, you know, with a three page binder with, and you have to turn the pages to see the listings that they have. Like I've heard, you know, the, the old people tell, tell me stories of that I'm like, that sounds awful. Like I've been doing this a long time and I think I can count on one hand how many of my clients I've actually put in my car and physically drove them around. Like that is not the way things happen. Now, will they go back to that? Yeah. I guess they, they could. And that's sort of my point, like change, be different, innovate, or find yourself hungry in a few yeah. years. Four and a half years ago, when I told people we're going to do this thing online and not meet with people in person, they were even like, oh, that's not how financial advising is done. Like you have to meet in person across the table. And it's just just fascinating to me. It's like sometimes how slow we we are as a society to innovate. 
uh, but then sometimes how quick and I think the pandemic definitely if there's one one thing that yes. is a positive it's like people people realize that you could literally work from anywhere and technology um, could be a horrible thing but in in some cases could be an amazing thing and and help you with efficiency I want to dive into real estate and and what's the difference between real estate the market gold Bitcoin all the other opportunities out there I I'm a fan of buying and selling businesses and really understanding that but I I understand that that takes a special type of mindset so why real estate uh, and why is it the best asset class versus all the other asset classes out there that we can be investing in? Um, so for me, I think it comes down to access, intelligence, and capital. You know, in order to buy gold or cryptocurrencies, you need a bunch of capital and you need it to go really well so that your capital increases. Real estate is one of those things. So when I own real estate, I get paid five ways, five ways. I get positive cash flow, I get appreciation, I get debt reduction, I get, uh, and then the, the last two are taxes, but we won't get into that, but then I, I get the tax benefit of the, the, the other two. Well, show me another asset where you can get all of those, all of those, those things. And the best part is because of the use of leverage, the proper use of leverage where people get themselves really pinched is when they improperly use leverage, whether you're talking, you know, stock market buying on margin or, yep. you know, you, you get it, but you properly use leverage. Real estate will make you freaking rich on somebody else's money, especially when your tenants are the ones paying it down. I mean, it's, right. it's silly um, how well we can do. I mean, I'll give you an example. The uh, first two places I ever bought, um, I bought in 2001, September 1st, 2001, and then September 4th. The first house, I put $6,800 down of my mom's money because I didn't have any money. There's three things you need to buy a house. You need income, you need credit, and you need a down payment. Well, I had my first big boy job. I had gotten literally three paychecks. Yeah. I had uh, good credit and I didn't have a down payment. So I borrowed it from my mom in what's called a gift letter, which means she gave it to me. I still paid her back, but let's pretend. you know. So I borrowed, I borrowed the money from her, bought it September 1st, 2000. Market crashes. Um, right after September 11th, which was 10 days later. But I was, I just turned 23. I was too stupid to know the difference. So I just owned the house. Uh, moved 2004, bought another house. Um, my same two roommates from my first house moved in with me. I rented the, the first little townhouse that I bought. And those two assets I owned all the way until 2021. Um, one of them I refinanced a year ago, pulled out 400 grand and bought uh, two fourplexes in Phoenix. Um, and then the, then I sold both of those and did what's called a 1031 exchange tax deferral program and bought apartment, you know, apartments. So if I'm being very honest, I think the first house, the six, call it seven grand for my mom, second house cost me $13,000. So it's a total of 20,000 bucks. Today, I think that $20,000 has grown into 1.1 million maybe give or take on a $20,000 investment. Now it's taken 20 years okay. to get there. It's taken forever, but okay. I'll, I'll, I'll take that time to make that kind of money. That's the power of real estate because of the proper use of leverage. Um, right. And I would say that it's safe. You know, for me, right. I don't invest in crypto, not because I don't like it just because I don't really trust it. Um, and Frankly, man, I know what I make on my money in real estate. I just don't need to be risky. 
right you know i'm because i'm a nerd we're gonna we're gonna do this math so you said you say approximately twenty one thousand dollars you invested over 21 21 years and you would say the future value is call it a million bucks call it a million bucks for easy math okay so that's a 20 percent over 20 percent yeah, it's about I, I, every I would say year, that I, which is unreal if you think about it. Over twenty-one years at twenty percent growth, and here's the the best part: that doesn't include the tax write-offs or the, yes. cash, the positive cash flow. That's just the value versus the value right. today. Now, now there would, if I had to sell, I'd have to pay some taxes, and that, right. that is true. But on my balance sheet right now, it looks great. Yeah. And and this is what I would say is. It, Let's talk about leverage for a second, because if you look at any anything, I mean, uh, we, we talked about our, our mutual friend, Pete, who helps people with stages. That's a form of leverage. Technology, form of leverage. We're having a conversation that thousands of people are going to listen to. Leverage. The reason why real estate, this is how I articulate real estate, and I'm not a guru like you as it relates to this class, but real estate's amazing because it appreciates, and a lot of assets do. It, it can create cash flow, and it's probably one of the better assets that can create cash flow. You get depreciation, which is an amazing tax benefit. Um, but then when, when you can use other people's money, and you can do that in other things like business, but it's really hard. Like when getting a business loan versus getting oh. a real estate loan is incredibly difficult. And so mm -hmm. that's that for me is like when I think of real estate, especially the single family houses, talk about an the easiest way to get hundreds of thousands of dollars for an asset that especially if you buy it right there's very little to no downside because it's a hard asset it's not like right. it's not like these things that it's not like the us dollar that we could just keep printing it's like <laughs> it's it's a hard asset and the other thing is i had jason hartman on the podcast recently and we were talking about mortgages and how it's essentially a short on the american dollar and like, mm -hmm. this is a thought experiment. If I could get a mortgage and that wasn't backed by anything, I, I would do it because I have confidence over the next 30 years that I can take money and, and earn a greater rate of return, especially when our dollars every year are getting less and less valuable. And so not yes. only are we shorting the American dollar, but we're buying an asset that's going to hopefully grow in value, the more valuable we can create. So I'm getting passionate about this too, but it's really understanding how to let use leverage and real estate is the number one asset class as it relates to leveraging well, leverage. Cause here's the deal. It, it's a federal law there's no discrimination. It doesn't matter if they like you. If you check the boxes, the bank has to give you a loan. It's amazing. Now yeah. story time for you. Check this out. True story. So the first place I ever bought, I, I made mention to it a couple times. I was, I had just turned 23 and I'm sitting at the closing table with my lender. I don't remember who it is. I, I, he could be sitting next to me and I would not recognize. I don't remember. I know it was a guy. That's all I remember. And I'm sitting at the title company and the there's, there's, you know, a bajillion documents to sign. And one of them says, uh, says verify here, sign here that you make $89,000 a year. And I was like, what? I don't make $89,000 a year. I make $30,000 a year. I'm literally right out of college. I'm like I said, I just turned 23. My first big boy job. And uh, he's like, well, yeah, but this is called a stated income loan. I was like, what the heck does that mean? It means you s tell us how much that you make, you sign this dotted line, and we give you a loan. And I was like, bro, that's lying. And he's like, yeah, but everybody's doing it. And do you want the loan or not? Because if you don't do this, we don't give you the loan. And I was like, 
well, that's stupid. So you're telling me that I signed this document, you're going to give me a $139,000 loan for this little house. And my two buddies are going to come rent, rent for me. And my personal obligation would be no different. The exact same yeah. amount of money if the three of us went and went and rented another house. And he's like, yeah. I was like, cool. Where do I sign? The mistake that I made is I didn't do that every year. I should have freaking done that every year. But yeah. You know, instead, I waited every every couple of years, and I frankly, that's how the the American economy, the American people, the lenders, Wall Street. I believe everybody's guilty for the crash in two thousand eight, two thousand nine. For me, I was like, like you said earlier, I was just betting on myself. I looked at this and said, "This is fantastic." So you're going to give me a loan. All I got to do is make sure I make the payments forever, and you stay happy. Yeah. And they're like, "Yeah." I was like, "Okay." Well, I I've never welched on a debt in my life, and I don't plan on starting now, so. All right, cool. I make $89,000 a year. That's yeah. stupid, but okay. Let, let's talk about prediction time. I know it's, I mean, people have been predicting all kinds of things that don't turn out. I mean, mm -hmm. just we, I, I just saw something recently that we've, we've printed over $10 trillion. 40% of the dollars today are new in the last 12 months. I saw another thing where we, our unfunded liability is $84 trillion. This is what we're on the hook for. Um, market at the time of this recording is, you know, flat right now, but pretty much at an all time high. What it, I mean, I've been saying that we just, as far as value creation goes, it's like, there's gotta be something that gives, but because of us just printing more money, I think we're just delaying the problem, but with interest rates having to go up eventually. What do you see? Do you see any, do you make predictions? Do you, would you want to go on record and be a genius a year from now or what I, I'm giving you an opportunity? Yeah. So here, here's what I would say. If you look at the past, like take the crash 2008, 2009, what happened is values, you know, plummeted. Well, you know what happened to rents? Rents stayed really flat. Right. And, and graph rents from like 2014 to 2017, they went crazy. Right. Well, if you graph like 2017 to 2007, you get a rent, and I'm speaking Denver specifically, but you get a rent increase of about 4%. If you graph from today to 1975, you get a rent increase of about 4%. So here's the thing. If you use leverage properly, and to me, proper use of leverage is fully amortized fixed rate debt. If you can do those two things, it's a, it's, it's a short against the American dollar, as you said earlier, or what I, the way I phrase it is a hedge against the American economy. Because something does have to give. Now, when will that be? I don't know. Here's let, let me let me say it like this. Let me see if I can get my, my analogy right for everybody listening. So if you owe money, right? So you owe mortgage, let's say you owe a mortgage. If you owe money debt and that debt is covered by something that's inflationary, but you but it's fixed for you, you're in a darn good spot because your payment stays the same, which is what fixed rate debt is. And the rent that you collect can increase. Uh, uh, an okay spot is when you have an adjustable rate mortgage covered by rent and they both can increase. Now, 2008, 2009, where people got pinched is rents stayed the same um, and couldn't increase, values dropped and the, the payments jumped. So they were screwed. The worst place to be is when your income stays the same, but your payment changes. That's when you can get screwed. And those are the two that's levers. Yeah. Yeah. That's what happens. You know, so for me, the reason I like rental properties is I can fix my payment. Now, expenses may change a little bit, but in general, it stays the same, but it's covered by rent. And that rent can go up 
and it typically does go up. In bad economies, it stays flat. Right. And and that's I'm not making that up. That's just a historical fact. Right. And um, in an economy, if things go south and people do lose their houses, what are they doing? They're renting. And so they're it's, renting. It's one of those things where you know I I had someone the other day tell me the trailer parks are very recessionary proof because there's only so far only so far um what am i trying to say there's only so far you can fall i guess correct and, and it's like there's a, there's a floor yes yep and and that's that gives you perspective of like america we're not going to let 40 percent of the population sleep on the streets there's some there's right. something that's going to happen for whether we agree with it or not it's just that's just the that's one bet that you can make um so it's it's very very interesting i uh, i don't get political very often on the show I can't help but to comment on your your name. Do you want to break down why you guys came up with uh, your, the, the business name? And do you have any uh, anything that you want to go on record as it relates to your thoughts on politics right now and uh, give your two cents? All right. So so three things. Going back to the value question, and it, it, in real estate right now, there's a lot of people that are, it's sexy to have Airbnbs. And people right. are making full-blown portfolios. Go ask all those same people how well they felt about Airbnbs in April of 2020. Right. When travel stopped, airlines stopped, those people were losing their minds because they were worried. Why? Because they had really nice, sexy houses. So here's the funny thing. I tell people this. If you have two rentals, nobody thinks it's sexy. If you have 22 doors, people start thinking it's, thinking it's sexy again. If you've got 62 doors, people are like, dude, what the heck are you doing, man? Teach me. All of my rentals save my home that I live in. None of them have more than three bedrooms. None of them. Why? Because I want to be the Bud Light of real estate. I want to be the thing that everybody can afford. Good economies, bad economies. I want to be, I want to be generally flat. It's, it's, it's what I have dubbed. It's my liquor store days, right? It's the Bud Light of real estate. That's how I think of it. Now, to your question, Atlas. Our company name is Atlas Real Estate. If you look at our our uh, um, our uh, logo, it is Atlas Shrugged. It, it's uh, Ayn Rand. It's the it's what you know. Some people have called the capitalist Bible, and it's those that produce. When eventually the story goes, eventually they just shrug and they just quit producing. If you take 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 take, those people will quit producing politically. Uh, I won't get into it too much. Here's what I can tell you. I didn't vote for neither Biden nor Trump in the last presidential election. I think politics, I try to stay more on the local politics because it affects me more. National politics are important. I also happen to think that presidents are kind of like quarterbacks. They get much more praise and uh, much more blame when things don't go well. Um, You know, like Tom Brady won the Super Bowl. Well, there's 21 other starters that have a little something to do with it. He's amazing. Don't get me wrong. And Tommy, Tommy Toughnuts, if you're listening, I'd love to debate it with you. I mean, you're awesome, old man, River. But uh, I would say that in general, politicians are not looking out for you and me. They are making rules. And for your listeners out there, it would likely disgust you how much income taxes I personally pay. When you look at my W-2 wages and you look at the income taxes that I pay, it, you'd be like, that's completely not fair. And I would tell you that, and my, the reason I say that is our politicians make rules for us that they don't have to live by. And that drives me crazy. My brother is a school teacher in California and he pays almost as much tax as I do every year. And he lives on a school teacher's salary. 
And it's totally not fair from a what's fair and equitable sense. But I just play by the rules, you know, and, and that's what I would say. So anybody that gets so worked up over, over politics, like, dude, they don't care about us. They're just trying to get over saying anything they can yeah. to vote. Generally speaking, if you want it, my personal opinion, I tend to leave, lean conservative with my money and liberal with my social issues. Frankly, I'm probably right in the middle. Just everybody leave me alone. Yeah. <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> you can all just leave me alone. That'd right. be great. Right. You're, what's your two cents on value creation? Because if I had to summarize wealth in general, it's, and, and if someone says, what's the hedge against inflation? It's like, find something that's going to be valuable and you'll be fine. What is your two cents on that? Absolutely. I mean, the word landlord's been around for a thousand years because he who, handled, he who owned the land was the Lord. It's feudal. It's from feudal Europe. You know, the, the, the term landlord, it, it just makes sense. Everybody needs a place to live. Everybody's got to have a roof over their heads. You know, I don't uh, own a bunch of super sexy real estate. I just happen to have own a lot of Bud Light real estate. Yeah, I like um, that, man. That, Bud Light of real estate. <laughs> I'm going to get you a t-shirt. I mean, we, should, uh, we should start a t-shirt brand. <laughs> yes. I, Bud Light might be mad at me for I that. I might do I Miller Light since I'm originally <laughs> yes. from Wisconsin. I might have to represent. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Well, I get a, I get a, a, a trademark since I copyrighted or something. It's my idea. Um, no, but uh, um, I would say... The other thing, you know what I would tell people too? Find one thing and do it really well. Yes. I, yes. I, I think so many investors, they try to they try to pick and choose. Like, I'm going to do crypto now and I'm going to do gold now and yeah. I'm going to short this, I'm going to buy that. And they're not experts at anything. anything. Like yep. I know my lane. You know, people come to me like, do you buy industrial real estate? Nope, I own zero industrial real estate. Do I do land, raw land development? Nope, I don't do any of that stuff. I know my lane and I'm really good at what I do. And if, if one of my clients has a question about something else, I'll go find the expert in that category. Right. Cause that's just, I just, I feel like it's, it's just safer and nobody can be good at everything. So I find that one thing and man, freaking do that. I, I preach that every day. Thank you for, for being an echo chamber for myself. Nice. <laughs> I've nice. been enjoying this conversation. If you can't notice the final question that I end all, all the podcasts are my legacy question. So to put on your dad hat and mm -hmm. let's say this, this is your last day on earth and you're with the people that you love the most, you can't give them any of your businesses, you can't give them any um, materials or, or podcasts that you've done, but you can only give them one last conversation. Where are you gonna make sure to highlight in that last conversation with, the, with your kids and the people that you love the most? I would say that, uh, you know, make sure that the last thing, when we leave, I go be hit by a bus, I want the people, the last thing that, how I spoke to people, I want them to remember that with kindness. Um, or frankly, even more than kindness is authenticity is, uh, I, I be you don't be, don't be two faced. Don't be you out here and a different you here, be you all the time and give of who you are. And in the end, that's all we, we can really give is who I am. I can only give that to you. Money comes and goes, uh, um, you know, advice changes. We talked about that, you know, what you're going to invest in, how you're going to live, but give of who you are and lead with love. I mean, I, I think that's, I think that's the. The, the, the key is lead with love. I think, I think you could also make the statement that if you live an authentic life, it's one of the true definitions of wealth. I, I love, love the answer. How can people stay connected with you? How can they, how can we follow the journey that you're, that you're up to? I, I'll tell you what, wherever you're speaking, we might have to get you at a better wealth conference <laughs> and have you be a speaker. I, I love the answer. I'm in. Man. I, I'm in. Um, so so uh, uh, it's realatlas.com. We do a bunch of free zoom calls and teachings and, 
you know, we have women's events and, and uh, IRA investing. I mean, all sorts of different stuff, but it's just realatlas.com. If you guys want to stay connected to us, I would say, follow me on social media, but I don't have any social media, but we do it. We do it Atlas. So uh, actually last funny story for you, I was sitting in marketing meetings a few months ago and I was like, I've never tweeted. And my, our marketing lady, Cassie looks at me and goes, yeah, you have. And I was like, I have. And I was like, am I funny? <laughs> so um you know, I, if you want to follow us, we, we'd be more than interested in, and you can email me, you can call me on my cell phone. I don't care, man. I, I, we're always here to help. Cool, man. I appreciate you so much. And I look forward to getting this aired and, and getting the feedback from it. There's a lot of good nuggets. Um, yeah, I, I honestly think there's, there's a couple key, key takeaways. And I would just encourage people listening to this and watching this is like, how can you live authentically? How can you pick that one thing? Be really, really good at it. If you're going to go the real estate route, which both Michael and I agree that it's like, that, that is, there is something there really understand it. Pick, pick, uh, pick maybe the Bud Light of the industry, <laughs> pick a thesis, become, become excellent at it. And then understand, understand how to leverage, um, whether it's money, whether it's your time, whether it's with relationships, but the person that can find value and then learn to leverage that value will become wealthy. Absolutely. Absolutely. Hey, thank you very, very much. I've, I've enjoyed the heck out of this conversation. So, and if you can, I dork out over this stuff. So I love it, man. Thank you very much for your time. All right. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review and share this with the people that you know and love.